0: Hello and welcome to the World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. This week, um, I am thrilled to be talking to Mary Caldor, who is a professor at the London School of Economics, but also the co-author of a very important new book called International Law and New Wars, and to discuss her thinking about new wars and the meanings uh, of these different types of conflicts for the laws of war and the international order. I am also joined by Anthony Dworkin, my colleague at ECFR. So Mary, maybe we can start with a very general question, which is uh, for you, when you think about it, what actually is the, the liberal order in the real world? What does it mean?
1: For me, what it means is a set of international institutions and nation-states, if you like, a model of global governance based on international law but based on rights-based international law. For me, what it really means is that we're moving, or if we move towards this order which I'm actually quite skeptical about. but. Um, but what it means is that the kind of security... In the past, we had a completely different way of ensuring security domestically and abroad. Domestically, we expected to be kept safe by laws. When there was a disaster, uh, we expected to have emergency forces provided, police, uh, firemen... But abroad, we expect to be protected against threats by armies, and war is the main mechanism for security. My view is that the old-fashioned war route really came to an end at the end of the Second World War. War became simply too destructive to be fought, and if you like, nuclear weapons are a kind of metaphor for that. Uh, Yet we haven't adapted to that, and what we really need is an extension of the kind of law-based security that we enjoy at home. And that also means that international law doesn't quite fit. So it also means that we have to rethink international law, and that's really what the book is about.
0: So behind that, there is this kind of central distinction that you've made for a number of years. I think your first book on the new wars was, must have been at least a decade ago, maybe even two decades ago. Um, yeah,
1: it was, it's, um, I think it was, came out in 1999.
0: Yeah, so it's almost two decades.
1: But now. it's really odd because it's read more than it was then.
0: Do you want to explain a bit for people who, who haven't read the book um, what the difference is between new and old wars in your mind?
1: Yes, and I think, actually, oddly enough, although I explained it differently when I originally wrote the book, I found reading class fits very helpful, because when I wrote the book nearly 20, well it was 20 years ago, a lot of people said I was post-class vizian. and that was meant to be a really horrible criticism, because if you're in the security field, Klaus Fitz is the Bible and everything you do has to you have to find a relevant quote from Klaus Fitz and I used Klaus Fitz to describe old wars but I honestly wasn't sure whether I was Klaus Fitzian or not so I spent a lot of time reading Klaus Fitz and I came to the conclusion that I am indeed post Klaus and I will explain why because Klaus Fitz's whole thesis about war is about war as a fundamental political contestation it's he defines it as an act of violence intended to compel your opponent to fulfill your will and he says the politicians the generals the people all tend to an extreme in all, because they have to win the politicians want to gain their objective the generals have to disarm the opponent and hatred and emotions are unleashed among the people. And that's the basic idea of war that's Clausewitzian. I realized if you start from a different definition, which is war is an act of violence framed in political terms, it needn't necessarily be a contest of wills. It could be a kind of mutual enterprise. And that's what I think new wars are in a way. There are, maybe mutual enterprise is too strong a word. Sometimes I say they're a social condition in which various armed groups gain from fighting rather than from winning or losing. And they gain from fighting either in political terms because they're trying to generate extremist ideologies. They want, I don't know, Sunni or Shia exclusive kinds of politics and most people aren't, don't have those extreme ideologies in peacetime but when you think you're going to be killed because you're Sunni or Shia you suddenly adhere to those so those people become politically much more important as a result of violence but also economically because these are situations where taxation has fallen there's no funding for the armed groups, so the only way they make money is through violence-related activities, which could be loot, extortion, ransom, uh, illegal smuggling. And in the end, you don't know whether they're fighting for economic or political reasons, but the point is they need to keep fighting. And so it's a sort of, large parts of the world, Syria, Yemen, large parts of Africa, are characterized by this social condition. And if we address them as though it was a political contest. We actually fail. If we use military force, it becomes much worse. (laughs) It becomes a legitimation to continue fighting. Uh, And if we try to get talks, we only get talks between the extremist groups, which allow them to continue their predatory activities. It's a bit like you decided to solve the problems of the UK by having talks between UKIP and ISIS. Right. So, I mean, I think that was. I
0: remember when your book first came out, and we just lived through the Kosovo war, which was a kind of perfect archetype of one of these new wars. Yeah. um, Which was neither a civil war nor an international conflict. I mean, it was. And it seemed to cut across burst across a lot of the boundaries which we had between war and peace and seemed to be very much part of the, the mood then which was a post-Westphalian mood yeah. and a set but since then like the, the big things that people have been talking about have been much more like the old wars haven't they? It's China versus America Russia versus you've got these things going on in parallel with each other because the great powers have come back into vogue at the end of the 90s all the books were called the end of the nation state, the new Middle Ages, it was all about a sort of collapse of the kind of classic Westphalian system, whereas now, the last few years, there's been much more focused on kind of big, strong men, leaders who were...
1: That's true, but all that has done is to exacerbate the new wars and involve them, and actually, the, the Russians in particular really understand this. Uh, the Russians have got it. They talk about non-linear war, and if you look at their analyses of non-linear war it's almost exactly the same as My New War. They talk about the dissolving of war and peace, and they say you can destabilise a country through political technology, which is exactly what they did in Ukraine. And so what they kind of understand New Wars as deliberate creations by the West. (laughs) Um, And in fact, this is the way they conduct their rivalry so if you ask me is there going to be a war there could be a global new war but it won't be a classic war in which armies confront each other it will be something like syria but affecting everywhere with lots of external intervention in it i mean syria's far worse than bosnia was because at least in bosnia russia and america were acting together (laughs) but syria is very similar in every other respect
2: yeah so Essentially, you're saying that the, the liberal order as you see it as a kind of ideal would be an order based more on people, individuals, and less on the kind of collective state vision of international law as it regulates um, you know, the use of violence. Do you see this as something that we've made some steps towards, or um, you know, is it a kind of an order in the making, or where are we now? in terms of that
1: I guess in the 1990s I would say yes we've made lots of steps towards it and you know I think the development of human rights law has been a most incredibly important step towards it as has the establishment of the International Criminal Court Uh, but there's no question as Mark was suggesting that we've gone backwards since then Uh, all I would say is that you know it If we continue on the present path, then we will have a global violent condition. And one of the points about my post class Fitzian argument is that if old wars tended to extreme, remember, sort of something like 70 million people were killed in the First and Second World Wars, new wars tend to never end. They tend to persistence. And so, you know, the risk is that if this global rivalry continues, we will get endless global new war, which is going to be dangerous for everything. So the question is, do the building blocks exist? Well, I actually think the European Union is the most important building block, which is why I'm so committed, such a committed Europeanist. I think if we didn't have the European Union, we would have had to invent it. And actually precisely because the European Union, like the United Nations, was constructed as a peace project, it really has the potential to do some of the things that I think ought to be done. And the question is, will the European Union survive? I think uh, the future of the Liberal Order in, in many ways depends on whether the European Union survives.
2: I guess when you're when you saying that the 1990s was a period of advance, the obvious implication was that things started to go wrong, you know, perhaps in 2001. Um And that it was the kind of the u s move towards labeling the fight against terrorism as a war was perhaps a kind of uh, expansion of the kind of war model that you're trying to get away from. is that how you see things?
1: Yes, except it's an expansion of a new war model. I mean the war on terror is funny it's not a sort of great power rivalry it, it's There's a wonderful term by a French guy which unfortunately I've forgotten, but it's the war of the manhunt. Mm. That's what it is, rather than a war against another state, but it serves the same purposes. It's a mutual enterprise if you like, it serves the same purposes for the US. So I think what went wrong was of course the war on terror and all of that, and the question is why did that happen? (laughs) And part of the answer is the heritage of the Cold War, the military-industrial complex that didn't want to go away on both sides, in Russia as well as in the United States, and the heritage of the past, and the search for going on existing within a kind of notion of protracted conflict. But I also think many of us who were passionate about human rights and the liberal order really neglected the whole issue of neoliberalism because I think neoliberalism and the huge social inequalities that have been created as a consequence of neoliberalism, especially in the sort of places where new wars happen, where you get very large numbers of unemployed young men, often from the countryside, um, coming into towns. That, and at the same time, you get rich people becoming incredibly rich and, and desperate to sustain their wealth. That's the recipe for a new war. And I think that the very moment when all the human rights agenda became accepted was also the very moment when the neoliberal agenda became accepted. And people like you and me were not really very interested in it. <laughs> and I think we should have taken it much more seriously and realised what an incredibly dangerous phenomenon it was. So
0: we talked a lot about the new um wars um and a bit about order in kind of general terms but can we maybe look a bit more what you're thinking about law is because law is something which has changed quite a lot over the last couple of decades and also has also kind of swung around in the way that, that we're talking about
1: how do you see that evolution what i think's happened is i mean i i take the view that laws something constructed, it's a discourse, and I think it's moved in a lot of, it's what people make of it, and it's moved in a lot of different directions. This is a period of sort of experimentation, which is very typical of big turning points in history, when people are trying out different approaches. And what we did in this book was to identify different models of security, which represent, if you like, a different communities that make and interpret law and show how law was changing in a number of different directions. So, is there a typology
0: that you create?
1: Yeah, we created a typology. So, one of them is the War on Terror, and what the War on Terror has done is hugely weaken the restraints on war. Uh, I mean, we spend a lot of time discussing the weakening of the conception of self defence. Uh, And I could go into details about that, because it's actually, I think, one of the most interesting arguments in the book. Not about how it's weakened, because everyone, in all sorts of ways, self-defense has been weakened. The notion of preemptive self-defense, the idea that you have self-defense against non-state actors. um, All kinds of different ways self-defense has been weakened, uh, which uh, gives permission uh, for those conducting the war on terror to go to war. Uh, but it's not just self-defense that's been weakened. Linked to that has been international humanitarian law and the fact that new wars simply don't fit interna- international humanitarian Well, Anthony's written some really interesting things which we quote a lot about whether, this, whether the war on terror can be counted a non-international It's really difficult to define what kind of a conflict new wars don't fit either. Actually, the classic interstate war or a non international armed conflict. New wars, you can't distinguish between combatants and civilians. All the things that are central for international humanitarian law just don't fit. And you see how the war on terror, that's the thing that's most famous in legal terms, the way in which Bush dealt, you know, said, they say this is a war which enables them to kill anybody on the grounds they're combatants that justifies the drone campaign but at the same time it isn't a war which enables them not to treat prisoners uh, or sick people with the protections they have under the geneva convention so that's one set of rules and and you know it's become widely accepted that self-defense applies for instance to non-state actors so that's one set of rules that's changed we keep the old geopolitics which is more or less what international classic international law and i won't go into that Um, then we have responsibility to protect which introduces the idea of humanitarian intervention but at the same time uh, assumes that you can use classic military force for humanitarian intervention which involves a contradiction between Uh, you're trying to uh, save people you're actually committing human rights violations in order to prevent human rights violation because there's a basic contradiction there between military force and human rights then we have the liberal peace which has added an enormous amount of new law basically taking the form of peace agreements and the international community treated peace agreements as though they were classic peace treaties on a, in the old international way.
0: So what's the, because arch- if, if, say, the archetype for the war on terror is obviously what happened after 9-11, I- um, Kosovo would probably be the archetype for, for responsibility to protect. What would the archetype for the liberal, New, peace, liberal, liberal bosnia. peace bosnia
1: bosnia is the pure archetype in which basically the peace agreement dayton consists of the international legitimation for a mafia truce yeah. that's what it is and we're very critical of peace agreements right and then we have the final model so you're
0: sounding like edward look another guest on the podcast who <laughs> famously wrote that article about give war a chance in uh
1: <laughs> No, because liberal (laughs) peace we say is better than war and um, actually I can't remember whether we used the term here, we then used it because after we'd finished all this we did this input into Mogherini's and we used the term hybrid peace. So hybrid peace is what you get when liberal peace meets new war, which is a sort of peace, which is better than outright, but actually all the predation and all the extremism and all the human rights violations continue. And then we put forward a human security strategy, which is our ideal, which is actually, I mean, and that's where self-defense comes in. We actually say, yeah, you would be able to use force Uh, in the case of a humanitarian catastrophe and an attack instead of calling say a terrorist attack a attack by a foreign state you would call it a war crime or a humanitarian catastrophe and actually all attack even attacks by states could be rebranded humanitarian catastrophes (laughs) And then, but then, how you protect them has to be in, com, has to conform not only with international humanitarian law but with human rights law as well. So that's how we think about human security, and we talk quite a lot in practical terms about what that would mean. And Christine's done a lot in the end about what would what what does it require in terms of international law.
2: Do you I mean, do you think then that the you know, the old distinction between, like, that's war and that's peace, not war, That that's now a kind of stumbling block to the kind of international order that we I
1: absolutely think it is. And that is a real problem, because if you define the war on terror as global, endless, it's just a recipe for endless targeted assassinations. And so, you know... What I'm really trying to say is that you would, you would keep international humanitarian law because it has so A many... A lot of
0: people make quite strong human security arguments in favour of targeted assassinations.
1: Oh really? How? Well, obviously
0: if your goal is, is about human security using cruise missiles or... And what about the human
1: security of the people who you uh, assassinate?
0: Well. The, the point is that a lot of the people who are being assassinated might be committing genocide or other kinds of things. So if you have a consequence... But the but argument you do have
1: to have due process. If you have a human security approach, if, if you suspect somebody of committing genocide, then you should do everything you can to catch them and bring them to court. You shouldn't just kill them.
0: I'm not making the argument myself, but many people would say that actually, if you have a human security agenda, is better served by targeted assassinations and drones than by the sort of intervention we did in Kosovo, which was pretty blunt instruments and lots of people in fact you wrote very eloquently about
1: it at the time yourself, yeah. if I remember. I was you. actually in support of it.
0: You were in support of it, but you were worried
1: about the, the fact that lots of there was a lot of No, I, I thought the method the goal was right and the methods yeah. were wrong. And yeah. I'm still yeah. saying that. Um, in the case of target i mean I, in the case of targeted assassination, I can give you so many reasons why i 'm against it. I mean first of all, I think above all, it weakens the norms against violence, and I think that 's what we 're seeing worldwide. I mean the idea that the President of the United States sits with a long list of people who 've been judged likely to commit genocide every night and decides which ones are going to be killed is just mind boggling I think and actually, up to two thousand and one. Uh, The Air Force was really against drones, because they felt targeted assassination was such a taboo in the history of international law. Grotius makes a big point about the things you must never do are targeted assassinations, poison and spies. (laughs) So, but I think more to the point, if we're talking in practical terms, um, it's just very. We've had 15 years of the war on terror, and terrorism is worse than ever.
0: Yeah,
2: but what, so what's the place, in your view, for you know the use of force against these groups that do clearly, to some degree, represent a security threat? If we're talking about, you know, th- this is the kind of one of the new phenomena that Western societies are dealing with is these groups that are based overseas, but that are also trying to. Well, I think, first, the key to you know, ISIS or whatever. First
1: of all, the key is politics. I mean, if... Why do we obey the law in our own countries? It's because we trust our institutions. It's not because we're afraid of being put in prison. And the really? these kinds of groups become important in situations where law has broken down. Yeah. So that, you know... If you look at what's happening with ISIS today, um, it's being fought inch by inch, room by room, street by street. We're killing many more people than uh, ISIS are. And then ISIS reappears in the liberated areas. <laughs> and until you've established a, a politically inclusive government in Baghdad, you can't deal with ISIS. Well then, supposing we had a politically inclusive how would we deal with it? Well, it would be something more robust than policing. Um, We would have to use force in certain circumstances. So I'm not saying let's just not use force at all. We would, but we would primarily have to try and arrest people. But also, if you're thinking of places like Syria, For instance, a lot of it is responding to what people on the ground are asking for. So there are lots of places in Syria where local people have negotiated ceasefires and would like to have the international community come in and act in a defensive way to protect them. Uh, And nobody's interested in that. They're all focusing on top-down talks or military intervention from the outside.
0: I think we were all three very much in favour of, um, of the goal in Kosovo um, and their kind of questions about the way it was executed. But actually, a lot of people, with the benefit of hindsight, would see that the goal was maybe more problematic than the way it was executed because it opened the door for other kinds of responsibilities to protect, whether it's sort of... Russian responsibility to protect ethnic Russians in different parts of the world or a kind of Saudi responsibility to protect Sunnis in different uh, countries or a a Shia responsibility or an Iranian responsibility to protect Shia or a kind of Chinese responsibility to protect Chinese nationals and companies when they're in different places that once you start opening the the kind of door to interventions of different kinds, it will inevitably be easier for people to in, to intervene and they won't necessarily go through the same sort of process. Their idea of due process might be slightly different from ours, though actually our version of due process was, much, was very contested in ninety nine. a lot of people think that it was actually technically illegal. Um, I
1: think know. it was illegal, I mean I was on the Kosovo Commission and we yeah. concluded that it was Ill- legitimate but illegal yeah. uh, and you're right, I mean would I now still think it's legitimate but it's an argument actually Christine and I had endlessly in writing this book because Christine didn't agree, she agreed it was illegal but she thought it was illegitimate too and there is an argument, I think a serious argument that you know Kosovo was the precursor to Iraq. Yeah. I think that's the important Anti-Arc- argument Anti-Arc- and uh, you know Tony Blair in particular thought he was going to be the Prime Minister for humanitarian intervention and he was going to open the way uh, and he would be welcomed by Iraqis like he was Kosovo's. Um, so that, I think that's a serious argument but I just wonder whether if it had been done differently and I think that over and over again in relation to Libya because I think if actually when Benghazi had called for help against Gaddafi's forces I think there had to be a response but if instead the world had said Benghazi is now an internationally protected areas and we'll put troops on the ground and we won't engage in an offense against Gaddafi but we'll protect Benghazi and try to help them establish a rule of law then the whole story might have been very different and it wouldn't have been able to be used as an excuse by the Russians to say, responsibility to protect is over. Um, so you could make that argument. So, I mean, that, you know, the hindsight's
0: a wonderful thing, but if we, if we look forward from now, you said that Europe, in a way, is the key to any positive advances in this world? What do you think Europeans can actually do given the fact that they are contending with Xi Jinping in China, Putin in Russia? Well, actually Trump I, I think United
1: Europeans States. could do an enormous amount and I do think the global strategy is quite good that Mogherini produced because the Europeans have enormous economic leverage and political leverage. I think the problem with the European Union is that politics have gone on holiday. There aren't any politics in the European Union. And so they don't take political positions. And they messed up Syria completely. You know, they took the American position, which was regime change immediately, whereas they were in political dialogue with Assad at the time about him carrying out political reforms. You know, they could have used their leverage to put pressure on Assad. They could have also worked with Turkey, which was very constructive at that moment.
0: Though some people actually, just a little aside, you know, you said that the ICC was a big step forward, and I I agree, I think it was a a kind of big step forward in terms of how we think about international law. But it, Syria does raise a classic issue about that. I mean, ca- how on the one hand can you push for a political solution whilst threatening to put people in front of the ICC and to take them to... I court think that's quite
1: I mean, if you take my argument that this is a mutual enterprise, yeah. then dealing with war crimes is an essential precondition for peace. You It doesn't
0: necessarily encourage the person who's committing the war crimes. No, but what I'm saying is that you put pressure
1: on them. I mean, right from the beginning, if if the European Union had said to Assad, stop bombing your citizens rather than move, (laughs) rather than go away, that would have been better. And I actually, no, I actually do disagree with you on that. I think that you do have to carry on the job of documenting war crimes and all of that at the same time as the political talks. But I think the key point, if you're asking me about a political solution, you can't reach, and that's the lesson of Bosnia, the lesson of the liberal peace, you can't reach a political solution based on talking only to armed groups and the regime. Because a political solution is about a future constitution. And actually, what's interesting about Syria at the moment is that the Astana process is not about a political solution. It's about just dampening down the situation on the ground, creating ceasefires. In order to have an effective political solution, I think you start at the bottom. And that's where the insight that new wars are a sort of social condition more than a contest is so relevant because what you start is by trying to deal with legitimacy at local levels and actually again something that's Diffid is actually doing quite well on this, you know perhaps the most interesting aspect which is never written about is the support for local administrative councils and if one of the best because it's tried to do it within Syrian law. It's the British Department for International Development. <laughs> But the European Union is also working on this. So there's a lot you can do also on the war economy. Try, you know, a lot of young men are joining extremist groups because it's a salary. So if you can promote legitimate economic activities even within a war, there's a whole lot of things that the European Union is in a very strong Position to do if it starts to rethink the way it does things, but also there's lots of international pressures I mean the Syrian war above all was externally driven Uh, You know the opposition really turned to arms because everybody from the outside was giving them money and they were quickly moved from a secular opposition to an Islamist opposition as each of the charities in the Gulf chose their favourite sort of sectarian position. And the brigades had to adapt to these sectarian positions.
2: I mean, some people would see this as an agenda for a much more interventionist approach, where essentially you want to kind of remove the the illicit, the illegitimate actors from the scene. Um, The war criminals, you know, if you're going to pursue a policy of displacing them out of power, then presumably that's going to involve a much more intense engagement into these situations. You know, similarly in Bosnia, um, if we'd taken the, you know, the, the, hi- the, the actors in the hybrid piece out of there, that would have been a much more intense engagement. Um, and I guess you could see that, you know, this is the, maybe the kind of policing model that you're calling for. Um, yeah, but is that I, right? I'm
1: definitely calling, and I think the issue is not, doing There's we, a policing model with no policemen, though.
2: But we're the policemen. We're right? the,
1: we're well, together. I mean, what
2: I would we? say... The, the, the Europeans. Europeans.
1: Well, but not just the <laughs> you Europeans. Can what
0: I want, you? How would you police Syria? What
1: I want to say is this, that I think it's, n- it's no longer a question of intervention or not intervention. Everybody is intervening. It's a question of how you intervene do you do classic military interventions Uh, do you provide arms which is most of the forms of intervention or do you do other kinds of intervention Um, do you do intervention and who do you treat as your partners one of the things the international community is really bad at most of these wars start With democracy movements, that's how Bosnia. I then most of
0: these wars start with men, because that's another really important theme in your thinking. Is the violence starts with men,
1: (laughs) but the movements start with democracy movements. That's what you had in Bosnia. That's what you had in Ukraine. And then this sectarian conflict is a way of diverting attention. And the people in the democracy movements then become turn themselves into civil society groups. They do humanitarian assistance. They do Uh, documenting war crimes they do all these kinds of things and they are usually the first to be killed so it's really a war against democracy by the two sides against democracy this is something that the outsiders don't get they think it's a war between two sides and those are the people they talk to they think the civil society is really nice we'll give them money they're doing good things what they don't treat them as is political partners (laughs) and so, I, and there are in all these wars, like the ceasefires, like Tuzla in Bosnia, sort of pockets where actually civil society's been rather successful in keeping the violence out. Fantastically interesting stories from Syria where leading families, for instance in Hama, which was, had the most terrible violence in 1982, negotiated to keep uh, both sides out of the town. Actually the same thing happened in the English Civil War and so it's thinking about how to ally with these civic tendencies that still exist and how to build them is the kind of intervention and yes it's a much more intense intervention it's not necessarily either military or police it may be economic it may be political
0: okay well it's quite a a big agenda and it is Certainly something which seems to be running directly against the the mood of isolation and entrenchment which is taking place in a lot of different European countries as well as the United States of America. We are coming to the end of the time for the podcast, but there are two questions that we're asking all of our guests on the podcast. The first is to complete the sentence, the liberal order is dot, 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 what's your sentence
1: the liberal order is the only solution to our current ills
0: and the second thing we ask everyone is to help uh, readers find uh things to sorry readers they help our listeners find things to read if they want to go deeper on this and we're going to put a a link up to some of the things that you mentioned obviously at the top of the list is international law and new wars by christine chinkin and mary Calder.
1: but what else can we put on that page Mm. What is a really... Gosh, I've read so much. It's difficult for me to think of. Oh, I know. Neff, I think, is a really good book. Stephen Neff on the history of the institution of war. Okay. well, thank
0: you very much. It's been absolutely (laughs) fascinating talking to you. From Anthony Dworkin, Mark Leonard, myself and Mary Caldor, it's goodbye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it... Please do tell people about it through social media. And even more importantly, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. In order to encourage you to do this, we have decided to create a special commemorative mug for the End of the World series. And if you write a review, we will, even if it's bad, we will send you an End of the World mug to your address. So please write to me at at ecfr.eu with a link to your review and an address to send the mug to and you will have something which will make you the envy of your family and friends and will hopefully enjoy thinking about the podcast uh, every time you have a coffee in the morning. We would like to thank the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs for kindly supporting the research that went into this podcast.